0: Okay. Well, let's uh, let's start the sermon and the uh, message. Let's uh, stand and read the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 7, verses 18 to 23. Uh Luke 7:18 to 23. Everyone got it? Luke 7:18 to 23. All right. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John, the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word and how it speaks to us every time. And we know that uh, the Holy Spirit lives in each one of us in here today and that you work on our lives individually. And so whatever you have us to know from Your Word and from Your Spirit, Lord, today, that that may come true for us, that we be transformed, and that our minds be renewed, and that You would uh, have Your way with us today, Lord. May Your presence be here and guide me into truth. In Christ's name. Amen. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who are new, or for those of you who are not new, but have just forgotten, Uh, Today's sermon will be a continuation in a three-part series we've been doing on um, something I've titled, uh, Biblical Principles for Giving to Those in Need, or Biblical Principles for Giving to the Poor. When we originally began the series, about a month ago, my original intent was we'll do this in one sermon, and we'll just do a smattering of different verses to get a theological perspective on it, and as we started, or as I started, I should say, I I ended up realizing there was too much information to do that in, three ser- or in one sermon, so I decided to do it in three. So, God willing, today will be the final message in the third sermon in this series. And so I want to give you a reminder of what we've covered so far so that you know which way we're going. In the first message, we talked about giving to those in crisis, um, people who've experienced natural disasters, famine. Um, so, for example, the Murray situation is a very good one right now. The Syrian refugee crisis we used a lot but how to give to those who are in crisis. We talked about who to give to, who are the priority of to give to, uh, how much are we to give, and, and how do we give it. And probably the biggest lesson we took from that is that our priority must be to take care of the brothers and sisters in Christ. Out of that, out of that message, there came a second sermon which addressed other questions. Um, are there times where to give to Christian brothers and sisters outside of just being in crisis situations? And we found out, yes, there was. And other times not to give to Christian brothers and sisters. There the times when we should actually withhold from giving and we, just, we discovered, yes, there was. And then we also finally talked about other times when we should give to unbelievers in times of need and the poor and so on. And when and how did we do that? So we addressed all these things. Today's final sermon is going to be on Jesus' teaching to his disciples about the poor. And some of the things that he said. And again, because it's a massive topic and impossible to cover everything Jesus said in the scriptures. Today is not exhaustive. Um, There's a lot he said. I'll just expose you to a few passages that might just be of interest and would give us a general consensus of maybe how he uh, dealt with the poor. And today we obviously read Luke seven. And this is gonna be the main text which we springboard off to learn about uh, principles from him. But one of my favorite things to do when studying a portion of scripture, and it's actually maybe a good idea for those of you who like to study as well, is to maybe ask yourself at at the end of a passage this question. What surprised me most about what I learned today? Or what surprised me most about what I read today? That's a really good question because often in that question, the answer to that is usually where the biggest learning takes place. Or where you need to change your thinking. Because you go into a passage they think, I think Jesus is going to do this and say this and deal with people in this way. And then you find out he deals in a completely different way with people than you're expecting. Or you handle situations differently and you learn something about how you're to address your own life and how to think and to live. While well, Luke 7 here is no exception to that for me personally, I found this to be extremely interesting. And we've talked about this before, but we'll go into detail here now. Notice after John the Baptist is in jail and he's wondering about if he's missed the Messiah or well, I shouldn't say missed, he's probably just going through what we were, just doubts because his life has been a preacher in the wilderness and he's been preaching, preaching and baptizing and now he's in jail and he's probably just going through like emotional doubt like we would if we were in this situation. And so he asks to send people to Jesus to see, are you really the one? Have I got it right? Has my, has my life actually been a fulfillment of you know, what God sent me out to do? And Jesus says this to him, The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now what's interesting about this is we have a series of opposites. So if, if I were to take some, if I were to not tell you this is from scripture, and I was to put on one side of a column the blind and then I put see over on the other side, and we played this game together, you, and I would say, what would the deaf you expect to have? And you'd say, hearing. And then you'd, I would say, well, what do you think the dead would have as opposite, into, opposite to? And you'd say, life. So then you'd say, the poor, the opposite would be rich, or wealthy, or full of material possessions. And he says, he, it's the only um, time in this passage that it's an opposite that's not fulfilled. In terms of how we would think. It's a poor have the gospel preached. Not get rich, get wealthy. Very interesting for me. That's what surprised me most in this passage. So the question has to be asked then. Why did Jesus say this? Why why did he not say the gospel. Or sorry, the, the poor to become wealthy or rich. I'm going to suggest four reasons. Of why this is so. And these ultimately are the lessons from the from the um, passage. The first reason why he would say the gospel needs to be preached to the court and not made wealthy is that a person's spiritual life matters more to Jesus than his material life. A person's spiritual life matters more to Christ than his material wealth. And for that we are going to turn to Matthew chapter 16 together as a church. So go to Matthew 16. 24 to 27 Matthew 16 24 to 27 Hey Stu can you read it if you got it there yeah. Then Jesus said to his disciples If anyone wishes to come after me Let him deny himself and take up his cross And follow me For whoever wishes to save his life Shall lose it But whoever loses his life for me shall, For life for my sake Shall find it for what shall, for, for what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's perfect. Thanks. Verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What did Jesus mean by gaining the whole world? Uh, fortunately for us, Uh, The Bible already tells us what it means to gain the whole world and I don't have to try to reinvent the wheel here. But in Matthew, uh, sorry, in 1st John, look at the following on the PowerPoint here. In 1st John 2.15 he says this, Do not love the world nor the things uh, in the world. If anyone loves the world, the the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here it is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father that is from the world. So what does the world have to offer? The pride of life, boasting, boasting the pride of life, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. That's the world's system as defined by, first John, or by John. In other words, Jesus is saying this, if a person pursues whatever their heart's desire is, and pursues whatever their eyes sees, and a mind is dedicated to the self-interest and to their own self-desires, Even if a person was to gain and receive everything that the person could possibly fathom, it is nothing in comparison to the value of the soul. So a person's pursuit of being popular, becoming successful through a measuring stick of intelligence, athletic achievements, wealth, life of pleasure, individualism, all these things, he's saying if you were to gain all that and you were to forfeit your soul and not give any interest to your spiritual life and your relationship to God, it is a, it's meaningless and a tragedy. Someone who failed to consider their spiritual life over above the, what the world has to offer, it's a tragedy and it's meaningless. And for us, that's about 80 years. The average person lives for 80 years, so even if you, if you gained gain everything you could possibly want and didn't even consider your relationship with the Lord, it is to forfeit it, forfeit your soul. You know, it's interesting. We've seen this played out in the theme of John. As we've been studying John for the last year, Uh, Jesus has been dealing with this theme of the importance of spiritual life over and over and over again. Um, One of the the key passages for me was in John chapter 6, verse 26 and 27. I'll get to it in a minute, but... Do you remember the context? Jesus has, uh, throughout the gospel, when telling people about the importance of the soul the importance of the soul, and how eternal life comes. He feeds the 5,000 and then he disappears on the boat and goes across the lake of Galilee. The people wake up in the morning or whatever and they can't find him and they're wondering where he's gone. And so they start walking from the east side of the, the Galilee all the way back to the west to go find him. And it says in, in John chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, that they actually recognized him as a prophet. So they said, this man is surely a prophet. And they even said, we want to make this guy king. Major statement in the context back then because to have a king is to make basically meaning you're going to go up against Rome because Rome's in power. So you're gonna have a potential revolt here if you bring Jesus in as king. But what's interesting here is he's considered king and prophet and they're following him for those things. In other words, they are following him for provisional care. They want, they want the provisional care because he's just fed them and taken care of them. What a wonderful king to have because I never have to worry about ever being in trouble. And Jesus addresses this attitude in them in John chapter 6. Look at this here. He says, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but here's why because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. In other words, you were in need at that time because you are quite a bit hungry because you've been following me around and there's thousands of you and you've left everything you've left your homes and so I took care of you and that's been attractive to you. But don't worry about that kind of food, worry about your soul. Worry about your relationship to me and worry about your eternal life. Jesus makes it clear to these people he wants to be pursued for the relationship he can have because he can bring salvation to them and to consider that the spiritual food he can offer them is more important than the physical food he can offer. Isn't it interesting here when he says here, why would the poor, why would Jesus say to them in Luke 7 then, why should the gospel be preached to the poor and not make them rich and wealthy? Because regardless of economic situations, from Jesus' point of view, one's eternal destiny is what matters the most. Second reason why he would recommend the gospel be preach to the poor and not making them rich as the opposite, was that Jesus knew that there was a strong correlation between one's wealth and the likelihood of entering heaven. There's a strong correlation from Jesus' point of view, from the person, how wealthy they are, and their likelihood of getting into glory. Uh, turn with me to Matthew 19, just um, just over the page for you if you're in Matthew 16. Look at Matthew 19, 23 and 24. Adeline, do you have it there? I do. Yeah. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Alright. The context of this passage, you, many of you know it. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus asking him how to receive eternal life. They have a discussion over the law about uh, how obedient you have to be to the law to get into the kingdom. The, royal, the rich young ruler claims to be a genuine follower of this law. And then Jesus raises the bar on them and ups the ante. He says, um, okay, if you're such a good law-abiding citizen, then I'd like you to uh, sell, um, give all your possessions away and sell, sell them to the poor. This, of course, is a marker of repentance for this guy because he was ruled by, by money. And the guy walks away sad. When he walks away sad, Jesus then turns around and says to the disciples, the passage that Abilene just read, that... Um, It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom, or it's easier to say for the camel to go through an eye of a needle, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. What Jesus was teaching them basically then was this, is that wealth was a potential barrier to a person's spiritual birth. The potential for someone to have a barrier in terms of the relationship with God was going to be the wealth that they had. This was opposite to what the disciples thought, um, clearly by the fact that they were astonished in verse, it says in verse 25, they were astonished at what he said. This was new teaching for them, they weren't expecting this answer. Apparently, in that uh, commentators that I read said in that context, people back then, the Jews actually believed that if you were wealthy and you gave more alms, you were likely to be, uh, that was a greater way of ensuring uh, a place in heaven. So they had a, the disciples had this thought that the more alms you give, the more God will approve of your life and the more guaranteed you'll get in. Like it's hell insurance, right? Or heaven insurance, we should say. And so these guys, when Jesus says this to the rich wrong ruler, they're shocked because this is contrary to what they're expecting. Here's what Jesus was not teaching. I want to make this clear. He was not teaching that rich people can't have a genuine relationship with God. He's not saying if you're rich, you can't be saved. He's not saying that. And he's he's not saying, he's not also teaching to the disciples that they're to liquidate all their assets and sell everything. He wasn't saying in order to be righteous you have to give everything away. He wasn't saying either. He was simply saying that rich people often don't get into heaven because they make the pursuit of well pursuit of wealth their main life focus. It becomes a substitution for a relationship with God. It's a form of worship. And obviously, when you worship something else other than God, the Bible calls that idolatry. So, while the person is not bowing down to a wooden idol or some kind of stone object that uh, they would have done, um, like Baal or something like that, it was the Almighty dollar. They're bowing down to the Almighty dollar. So, anyone who substitutes God for anything that's not for something created is committing idolatry, and those kind of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus kind of brings this up in another way in Matthew 6, 24. This is an interesting passage, you'll know this one well. Uh, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Of course, a master is someone that, you would, that has authority in your life. Uh, you are a servant in his, under your master, and you would recognize that you would surrender your rights to that master. And you'd be subservient to them. So when he says, well, people would understand this makes sense with God. That's why a Jew back then, in that context, they wouldn't deny that God was their master. They wouldn't they would understand they were subservient and under his authority. But for Jesus to turn around and say to them, you have to look at money this way as well is very interesting. Because Jesus, or God at this moment, is a being. They understood you could have a relationship with his divine being. Money is an inanimate object. How can you have a, an inanimate object and you be in relationship with it? But, but Jesus is saying, you can be subservient to this uh, inanimate object, which is wealth. And this inanimate object can have authority over you and you can surrender your rights to it as well by the way you live. And I like the parallel verses, like he says here, the parallel words. He says, you can hate one, love, hate one master or love one master. You can de- be devoted to a master or despise your master but you can't serve both of them at the same time. Likewise, you can hate money or love money, you can uh, be devoted to it or despise it, but you can't serve both at the same time. You have to choose. You can't have two masters in your life and you can't have money and God in competition with each other. There has to be a choice. So again, why would the Gospel in Luke 7 be preached to the poor and Jesus not want to make them rich? Because to make all poor people rich and wealthy would be a potential stumbling block for them inheriting the kingdom of God. Because there's a direct correlation between one's wealth and the potential for its worship. The third reason why Jesus in Luke would say for someone to preach the gospel to the poor and not for them to become rich. Is that once you receive the gospel, you come under God's divine care. You all of a sudden shift from being on, out of his care to underneath his care. Look at Luke chapter 12, uh, starting at verse 22. Hey Bethany, you got it? Almost. <clears throat> Luke uh, 12, mm-hmm. and go uh, 22 to 31. Okay. Then Jesus said to his disciples... Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens; they do not sow or reap, they have no store room of barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds! Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow; they do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. And your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Great. So many people are poor, for no fault of their own, like, people like widows and orphans which we talked about last week. And people who've been in natural disasters, which again is no fault of their own. Many people who come into poverty or in need are due to sinful choices. It's due to lifestyles. And that's why they lack clothing, food and shelter. And people in these situations, who are not Kingdom seekers, Kingdom of God seekers, will stand outside of God's, like, supernatural divine care. Once they receive the gospel and they start seeking the kingdom, then they will come underneath God's protection and God's care. So there's no need to worry daily about the basic needs of life, like food, shelter, and clothing, because God is supernaturally involved. He actually says here, you have, if you don't believe this, you have little faith. And he says, you're, and verse, 20, uh, verse 30 is important to me because he says here, all the nations of the world eagerly seek these things, but your Father knows what you need. So when we're worrying about these basic necessities as a, as a poor person, uh, when you see the gospel message, you now stand underneath God's providential care. He sees the things that you're going through. He sees the things that you need. And he's completely aware of it. I'll give you an illustration. And Dan and I like to throw back questions at each other and poke holes in each other's theology and come up with like funny little stories and stuff. So he gave me this story I thought was pretty good. He gave me an illustration to show you what it looks like to be in poverty or in need as a non-Christian and then you're introduced into to Christianity. Let's say there's a food shortage and um, you're in trouble and you have your basic needs needed to be met. And a big truck pulls up and you have your kids behind you. And the, the owner of the truck pulls up and you see massive bags of rice and stuff like that in the back. And he's about to give you a bag of rice to help your basic needs for the day for your family. And, he's, and as you're about to take it, the truck owner says, i got another option for you if you don't want this. And you listen to him. You say, what is it? He says, I can give you this bag of rice and it'll feed your family for about uh, three weeks. Or I can introduce you to a billionaire who will take care of your needs for the rest of your life. Which one do you want? Well, you would think that the person in the, in the family would say, I'll take the billionaire. What Jesus is saying here in, in seeking the kingdom of God is this. As an individual who is not related to God, you can fight your whole life trying to take care of yourself and your family and your needs. Or we can introduce you to the billionaire, the God of this world, who will take care of you supernaturally and, and divinely for the rest of your life. <laughs> Which one do you choose? You know, I was when I was reading this, um, I was thinking of examples in my own life. I've never been in poverty, but I have been in times of need. And I know I've talked to people like Callie. I could share with you, and we might in the dialogue, some of the crazy things that God's done for my family in terms of uh, needs when we've been sort of in a crazy situation. And these things didn't happen to me before when I was a non Christian. And I know some of your stories, I've, wit- I've written some of your stories down about how God's come in to divinely act in your lives when things have been, when it seemed like it was impossible situations in terms of physical needs. It's very interesting. One thing though is in here, he doesn't promise you how he's going to do it and when he's going to do it and what it looks like. So that's, the, that's tricky because no, we can't put a, a slam dunk answer on what that looks like. But we can just know from experiences in terms of how it has played out in our own lives. I was reading this, and it said here, consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no store room, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable, valuable, valuable? (laughs) That's the Greek uh, version. (laughs) Valuable (laughs) Valuable for uh, for are you than the birds? And um, I was thinking about this, I'm like, yeah, okay. Okay, God, I'm more important to you than a raven, and yet you feed the ravens. And then I started thinking back to... uh, This divine care. And really God even promised to take care of me. And and needs like when I'm really like. When things seem desperate stuff. And then he brought me to Elijah. Because in 1 Kings. Elijah is in the midst of a famine. And he's like. Like in like desperation. And God's judging Israel for this famine. And guess what he uses. To feed Elijah. (laughs) ravens. Ravens bring food to him. On a daily basis. So that he can eat. Elijah, in his wildest dreams, would probably never think that God's, his provisionary care was going to be done in that way. But I was just thinking about, you know, the ravens specifically from this verse and how God did that. So anyway, I don't, could God give us, bring ravens to us and bring us food? He could. Would he? I don't know. But he does things like that in our lives that we just don't necessarily always know how it looks. But there are raven moments in our lives for sure. So why would the gospel, again, be needed to be preached to the poor more than giving them riches? Because those who receive the gospel and seek his kingdom don't have to worry anymore about God not taking care of them. The fourth and final reason for why the poor need to receive the gospel and not riches comes from an understanding of the definition of the poor that Jesus is talking about in Luke 7. And to me, this is the most fascinating and most... uh, uh, important part of the message in my own preparation. Before we begin to dive into what the word "poor" means here, I want to ask you a question, and I would like you to define poor people and poverty. Does anybody yell it up? When you think of poverty or poor people, uh, what do you think of? Can't take care of their own basic needs. Okay. Okay. Anything else? Or is that pretty much encapsulated? <laughs> Poor poverty yeah, just like people who don't have homes and have to sleep on the street. Okay, that's very good. That's a good definition. People who don't have Jesus Christ as their savior. Okay. Or just even someone who's gone through a, a major loss. And mm-hmm. maybe they still have money in the bank, but like like the families in Fort McMurray and just, I don't know, yeah, experiencing major devastation. We have a Yeah, because you feel sorry for them. Okay. Mm-hmm. Alright, so with the exception of Shauna's answer there, the, 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 um, the um, yeah, that's the problem when you open it up. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, isn't it, we define in North America poverty by materialism. Like, if you're poor, you don't have stuff, and if, you, if you're poor, you don't have things. But we never define it in any other way. Well, there's four definitions that I could find. Uh, the Greek word is as Tokos. And it has four meanings that I could find in the, in the study of the word. The first one is pertaining to someone who is lacking in spiritual worth. Okay? Tokas. Pertaining to someone who is lacking in spiritual worth. Uh, another definition is someone that is uh, pertaining to something that is extremely inferior in quality or shabby. Or it's shabby, so like that would be like something that is poorly made. Or, um, yeah, you get the idea. Uh, another one is pertaining to being economically disadvantaged or dependent on others for support. So that's the material. That's the widow, the orphan, the person in crisis, um, someone like the you know the rich man in Lazarus. Like Lazarus was the beggar. He's someone who was like uh, fits this definition really well. Or the Christians in Jerusalem uh, when during the famine. That's them as well, pertaining to someone being economically disadvantaged or dependent on others. And the fourth definition is pertaining to being thrust on divine resources. I'll explain that a bit more. Pertaining to being thrust on divine resources. This is a reference not only to unfavorable circumstances economically, but these are people who find themselves in a situation where they're oppressed and disillusioned and in special need of God's help. So it's not just an economical, although it includes it. It's disillusioned and oppressed and in special need of God's help. Is it interesting that that is the definition of the poor in Luke 7? Of the four words, that's the one that Jesus is speaking about in this context. So they're not defined by purely economics. They're people who are emotionally hurting. They're people who are without hope and they're disillusioned in their life. No wonder Jesus says to people like that, Giving them money, giving them riches, is not going to be the solution to a life change. It makes un- understandable that if they receive the gospel, it's at that moment that he will meet the needs of those kind of poor people. To be introduced to him is to have a renewed sense of purpose, a new sense of self-worth. For someone who is disillusioned and emotionally without hope, that is a brilliant brilliant cure. So Jesus is saying the poor don't need handouts, they need divine help. Well, this is extremely important for us as a church. Why is that important? Because in our culture, outside of the church, we believe that the poverty alleviation and the poor the poor people is best taken through relief efforts. Because we define poverty in North America by what? Meeting material needs. So when we see people with material needs we go and we try to meet those needs but then we turn around and get frustrated when we keep doing that and we notice there's not, they're not changing they're not changing because we're trying to meet a need that they don't even have <laughs> right and again it goes back to our definition of poverty and it's our culture does that but you know what our church isn't that much far off either Some, t- a lot of times in our churches we try to do a poverty and poor meet the poverty and meet the poor needs in terms of financial alleviation because of the way we define poverty as mostly materialism. If we can learn something from this word in here, Jesus is saying the people who are in poverty are actually disillusioned. They're without hope. That is why they need the gospel. And when you keep giving them money, it's no wonder there's no cure. That was very, very fascinating to me. And I'm so grateful that at the time I was reading this or that this book inspired me to give a practical definition of poor. Jesus was 2,000 years ahead of his time in terms of understanding this. This book is called When Helping Hurts by Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert. It's basically how to alleviate poverty without hurting the poor and yourself. So, Because sometimes when we give, we actually hurt and we don't even realize it even though we're trying to do what God wants us to do in terms of taking care of needs. But what's interesting is, I want to read something from here, but at the end of World War II, Europe was devastated and the Allies established the World Banking System to rebuild Europe. Um, they provided huge financial aid to get all the countries of the Allies in Europe uh, up and running after the Germany and everything destroyed the, their, their places. And the results were extremely successful, extremely successful in giving relief and aid. The World Bank then thought, well, man, if we did this for these economic European countries, wouldn't this also work for low-income countries across the world? So they started to do the same thing with drastic failure. So they started to ask the question, why did we do so well with the European countries? And why did we so do so poorly with the low-income, impoverished countries? What happened? They started to do research and they asked the basic question what is poverty and how do you define it? And they interviewed 60,000 poor people from 60 low income countries. Easy to remember, 100 times 60 is 60,000. So uh, probably about 100 people from, I'm guessing 100 people from each country. And they got these basic answers. Now think of our definition. We define poverty in North America as lack of materialism. Listen if you can hear a comment, thread, and the interview of these poor people. I'll read five of their responses. Listen for the words. For a poor person, everything is terrible, illness, humiliation, shame. We are cripples. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage everyone, everyone wants to get rid of. This is from someone from Moldova. Next one. When I don't have any food to bring my family, I borrow mainly from my neighbors and friends. I feel ashamed standing before my children when I have nothing to help feed the family. I'm not well and I'm not employed. It's terrible. This one's from my uh, Guinea. This one's from Latvia. During the past two years, we have not celebrated any holidays with others. We cannot afford to invite anyone to our house and we feel uncomfortable visiting others without bringing a present. The lack of contact leaves one depressed creates a constant feeling of unhappiness and a sense of low self-esteem. I'll give you two more. Uh, Uganda, when one is poor, she has no say in public, she feels inferior. She has no food, so there's a famine in her house, no clothing, and no no progress in her family. In Cameroon, the poor have a feeling of powerlessness and an inability to make themselves heard. Do you hear a common thread in in those passages? Are they in those testimonies? They define poverty in psychological and social terms. We define poverty in materialistic terms. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? They define poverty in terms of helplessness, powerlessness, humiliation, inferiority. Isn't it interesting that Jesus 2,000 years ago says, I've come to preach the gospel to the poor. If he did what the World Bank did and set money into these people's lives, it wouldn't change their situation because it's it's an emotional and psychological and spiritual issue. Jesus says they need the gospel. People don't change because of a change in their pocketbook, they change because Jesus Christ actually enters their life and makes a huge impact and difference. I find it amazing that, the, that he was well, of course he knew what he was talking about and why that had to be so. But again, in many cases, when we as a church, when we try to make relief through materialism our primary <clears throat> efforts for dealing with the needy and poor, and not the gospel, and we often do more harm than good. And this is not what they need. Primarily, we have something that no one else can offer, which is that powerful gospel message. And it's interesting, Jesus, there's no record in Israel of him ever setting up soup kitchens. We have no passage of him in the streets taking care of clothing, shelter, and food. He's never campaigning for them. He's not setting up welfare systems. His primary thing is to preach the gospel in every way.